While those are going back, I want to welcome everybody here. And what you have walked into this morning, if you are new to Grace Community Church, is we are walking through the book of Genesis together on Sunday mornings as a local church. Specifically, we're walking through Genesis chapters 1 through chapters 11. And this morning, we have made our way to Genesis chapter 9. So if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn there this morning. And we're going to start out, we're going to pray together, and we're going to ask God to bless our time this morning. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come to You this morning, and it is our desire, Lord, that You would be honored in Your church, that You would be honored in this place, Lord Jesus. And we gather together this morning to worship You. You are the Christ, You are the Son of the living God, and You have saved us, Lord, called us by Your name, Lord, called us into Your holy presence. And we are Your church, called by Your name. And we, and we pray, Lord Jesus, that You would be magnified in our lives. And we just say to You in this moment, Jesus, You are the resurrected King over all that You have made. You are the Holy, Holy, Holy One. There is none like You, Lord. And You have opened our eyes, Father, to the glory of Christ. And we bless You today. Thank You, Lord, that we know You because of Your grace, God. Thank You for this knowledge of Yourself that You have given to us, Lord. We count it as our highest treasure in all of life, surpassing worth to know You, Lord Jesus. God, every one of us that, are, that know You in this room, Lord, we are like that beggar that cried out, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. And You did, Lord. You did have mercy on us. And You called us to Yourself resurrected King of glory, and You gave us personal attention, and You saved us, Lord, and You call us by name. And we worship You in this place today, Lord Jesus. And we come to You, God, in mercy and grace. This is our plea this morning, that You would cause grace upon grace to fall on us, Lord, and that You would feed us with the words of Your mouth, God. We need words from Your mouth to be sustained, Lord, and we ask You to do that, God. And you tell us in your word that you're a good father and that we don't ask you for fish and you give us a snake. So, Lord, we come to you this morning. We ask you to feed our brothers and sisters. Feed us, Lord, from heaven, God. Feed us with bread from your word. God, I pray for every person in this room that you would carve out a holy moment in the next hour and that you would speak to them, Lord, that you would arrest their attention over the things of Christ, over the things that You have spoken in Your Word, God, and that You would cause Your Word to pierce, to pierce us, God. Confront us with Yourself today, Lord. Encourage us, God. Lift our face to the heavens. Encourage us with, the, with this glorious Gospel. God, help us to walk out of this room today. Lord, encourage our, our faces lifted up to the heavens to where our help comes from. God, drive out coldness towards You. In the next hour, God, use Your Word to break, to break it in half, to break coldness towards You in this place. God, come speak to us today, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen. Alright, we're going to start our time together this morning. And we're going to read Genesis chapter 9, verses 1 through 17. This is God's covenant with Noah. So I want you to turn there, get your eyes on these words, and we're going to read this together. This is the most important thing that you're going to hear 
in the next hour. These are the only words that you're going to hear in the next hour that are directly from God without error, full of holy power. So I want you to listen. Lean in and listen. This is the Word of God. (coughs) And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon every creeping thing that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you (coughs) that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you. For all future generations, I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and you and all flesh that is on the earth. This is the word of God. So I want to take some time this morning before we unpack these 17 verses. And I want, you, I want us to really try to frame up the background that, the, that this passage falls into. The context in the Word of God. And if you haven't been with us the past two weeks, we have been camped out on this story of this flood that God sent in the days of Noah. And this provision of salvation that God made in the form of the ark. Okay, So I want us to all think back on this. I want you to think back. On the moment that Noah and his family, they're in the ark for over a year. And the moment that that door opens and Noah and his family walk out of the ark and their foot hits dry land. I want, I want us to try to picture this in our mind. And Ryan pressed into this last week, so this is just a reminder for us. Okay, So what's in the mind of Noah and his family? They just watched God kill every person on the planet except for eight people. Okay? So I want you to see this moment as a sober moment. There's nothing happy clappy about this moment when their foot hits dry land. They just watched God kill everybody except their family. And so there was a sober, serious moment. 
And the first thing that Noah does is he lays down a sacrifice before God. You remember this? Earlier in Genesis chapter 8, he lays down a sacrifice before God. That sacrifice shows at least two things. It shows that Noah is thankful to be preserved by God. That God brought him through this flood of judgment. And he's saying, thank you Lord that you did this. That same sacrifice is also confessing sin to God. There is blood being shed. And this is Noah's confession that he and his family are sinners. And they are in need of God's forgiveness. So I want you to imagine this tension that is in the heart of a sinful family as their foot hits the dry land. Yes, they are thankful for being delivered from this flood of judgment. But I want you to imagine the fear sitting in the back of their mind. And what's the fear? They know that they are sinners. Therefore, that they are, they are fearful and afraid that any moment God could send another flood and wipe them off the face of planet earth. Okay? They know that God could do this justly. God has rescued them, but they are still sinful. Okay? So I want you to imagine the tension there. And this is the exact context that this covenant comes into. God gives His covenant to Noah and his family to comfort these fears. Okay? His covenant is His promise. If everything's fine, we don't need His promise. Okay? But God gives us His promise to comfort us, that He's given us something to lay a hold of. Okay? This is the context of the covenant. And this is what we're going to focus in on today. That the God of the Bible is the God of covenants. That should be across the top of your sheet. So we're going to peek into this covenant of Noah, but then we're going to back up and we want to know something about God today. He is the God of covenants. And here's what we mean when we say that. I, I don't know how many promises are in the Bible. Okay? There are a lot of promises in Scripture. Every single one of them are unbreakable that God promises to His people. Okay? But there are some of these promises that are exalted above the others, and those are called covenants that God makes. They're not any more true than any of the other promises that God, that God makes, but they're highlighted in Scripture. The best way I can, that I've been helped by this personally is I heard, I think it was Charles Spurgeon, he described the covenants of God like a basket that all the other promises of God fit into. Okay? These are the covenants in Scripture. They're highlighted promises of God. These covenants, are they're, they're a binding oath. They're when God says something and He swears by His own name that these things are going to be so. Okay? And what we're going to do is we're going to zone in on this. The God of Scripture, by His own sovereign initiative, enters into these covenant agreements with humanity. By His own sovereign initiative. Nobody twists His arm and makes Him do this. Nobody twists His arm and manipulates the conditions of His covenant. This is His sovereign choice to enter into these covenants. But it pleases Him. It pleases the God of Scripture to bind Himself to His own words, to humanity, and to His people. These are the covenants, the holy oaths of God in Scripture. And so what we want to be reminded of today is that our God is a covenant-keeping God. I don't know how much attention you've ever given to this in your life. Our God is a covenant-keeping God. Listen to Deuteronomy 7, verse 9. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant... And steadfast love with those who love Him 
and keep His commandments to a thousand generations. Covenant-keeping God to a thousand generations. That's the God of Scripture. The God who makes and keeps His promises. Okay? This is where we're going. Now, this, this theme of covenant, this is a major theme in the Word of God. It spans from Genesis all the way through Revelation. Okay? And even our Bibles in, in primitive form, the, the, the book of Moses, our Bibles, the, it is called at times in the Old Testament, the book of the covenant. Okay? That's how important this theme is in Scripture. Now, there are about six major covenants that, that help frame up how the Bible flows. Okay? The, the covenant that God makes with Adam, the covenant that God makes with Noah, the covenant that God makes with Abraham, the covenant that God makes with Moses, the covenant that God makes with David, and then this glorious new covenant that God makes with Jesus, and Jesus gives it to His church. So these are the six covenants that help us wrap our minds around how the story of Scripture flows. And today we're going to zone in on this covenant that God makes with Noah in Genesis chapter 9. Now I want to say this before we unpack this, that this covenant is unique from some of the other covenants in Scripture in the sense that this covenant is universal. It is made with all of humanity. In fact, of every living creature. The covenants that follow in Scripture, they're going to be made to a particular specific people, not this covenant. This covenant is made to Noah and all of his offspring. It is a universal covenant that God has made. And what this means is that this matters to us. This matters in our generation. Okay, This is not some, this is what happened way back then. This covenant is still in effect today. Hundreds of generations of humanity, whether they know it or not. Okay? They could have been completely unaware of what God had promised Noah, but hundreds of generations of humanity have experienced God's faithfulness that He promised to Noah in Genesis chapter 9. And then just taking that in, more personal. Every single person in this room, you have personally experienced this grace that God promised to Noah in Genesis chapter 9. You have been preserved by God. You have been preserved by God. So this is the way we want to study this this morning. As this is, this is the covenant that God makes with Noah, but it's immediately relevant to our lives. This is where we're headed. I want you to remember this. This covenant is God's response to the fears of Noah and his family. It's God's response to the sacrifice that, that they laid down. Okay? And so this is, this is what's going to be answered today as we walk through these 17 verses together. What is sinful humanity to expect after they watch God destroy every other human being on planet earth with a catastrophic global flood? What are they, what are they to expect after that? And this covenant is going to unpack this. So we'll start with verse 1. Start with verse 1. And the first thing that mankind is to expect is that God's purposes for human life are going forward. They're going to continue. Listen to verse 1. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So, the fear is we're, we could be washed away by this, this flood at any moment. And, and here the first thing that God says is they're expected to live and not die. In fact, they're expected by God to bring forth future generations of offspring. 
And we see even in this word that God, that human beings, God's image bearers, they're going to fill the earth again. Okay, So this is a word of life, that life is going to continue. But it's even more than that. Because this, this language in verse 1 is almost verbatim. The exact same thing that God tells Adam back in Genesis chapter 1, verses 27 and 28. You remember that? We unpacked that and we said that God's plan for humanity is to fill the earth with His holy image. And what we see here is that even though God judges all of humanity, His purposes are going forward. He is going to finish His work. This, this purpose for which man was created is going to press forward. This is what we see, even in the first verse. God's purposes for human life will continue. We'll come back to that in a minute. Then God tells mankind to expect that He will provide nourishment for human life. And you see this in verses 2 through 4. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and on all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as, as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat the flesh with its life, that is, its blood. So, back in Genesis 1, God told Adam and Eve that they were to, to be fruitful and multiply. And then He said, and have dominion. And subdue the earth and have dominion. Okay, And instead of repeating that same phrase here, He gives it a little twist. And He, he shows the dominion that mankind has over the animals by giving them some new rights over animals. And you see these new rights explained out in some, some dietary laws that are restructured. Okay, God modifies the food laws for human beings. You say, what do you mean? Well, He said it right there. Back in Genesis 1.29, God gave humanity every green plant for food. And now, God gives humanity every living thing for food. He gives new rights over the animal world. Okay? So here's what that means for us this morning. After God's covenant with Noah, it is just as lawful for you to eat a steak as it is for you to eat a salad. Okay? That's for us. That's for all of us in this room. Okay? There's some weird things that go around sometimes about, you know, uh, eating steaks might be good, but it'd be really better, you know, if you backed it up all the way to Eden and you know they didn't eat meat in Eden and we probably shouldn't eat meat anymore I mean God doesn't really say that but you know if you're really holy you wouldn't eat meat okay and the problem with that is a lot there's a lot of problems with that okay number one is it's, it's ignorance of God restructuring the food laws here in Genesis 9 the second problem is this that the Son of God, Jesus Christ, the night before He dies, He chomps down a big old piece of meat called the Passover lamb. And there's nobody on planet earth more holy than Jesus. And Jesus eats meat. Okay, And I don't mean to get off here, but there's a lot of talk. I don't know if you've heard this. There's a lot of talk in our generation about different diets being better than other diets. Okay, There is nothing in God's Word that teaches that a vegetarian diet is any more acceptable before God than any other diet. In fact, there's nothing in God's Word that commends any diet as any more acceptable than other diets. I'm just reminded of this. Let's just make sure everybody knows this as you leave this room today. Somebody even popped in your mind. Yeah, but, but our bodies are the temple. You know, our bodies are the temple, right? 
And we say amen to that. That's, that's like the marketing scheme for every Christian exercise program and diet that's ever, ever came out, right? Our bodies are the temple, okay? And they are. They're the temple of the Holy Spirit. That, that actually shows up in God's Word in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. But I want to make sure that every person knows this as you leave this room today. That passage of Scripture has zero to do with exercise and diet and 100% to do with sexual purity before God. Your body is the temple. And God has commanded that you drive out sin from God's temple. Sin has no place for God's people. And that's a warning, right? That we don't just tagline verses from God's Word and make them mean whatever we want them to mean. We use it how God uses it in context. So that's the warning that we wouldn't use these little off-context verses to justify our preferences. Okay? So, if we have anybody in the room and you want to eat vegetarian or organic or paleo, we say, go for it, brother and sister. You are free to do these things. Absolutely free to eat this way. But you're free on the basis of your personal preference. And the warning is that nobody drags the Bible into these things to try to sanctify your preferences and use God's Word to say what He didn't mean for it to say. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 8. Food will not commend us to God. I'll say that again. Food will not commend us to God. You remember that next time you go to the grocery store. Food will not commend me to God. Listen to the rest of the verse. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and we are no better off if we do. Food will not commend us to God. All right, sidetrack there. Back on track. We are given rights to kill and to eat animals for food. Okay? This is not kill any animal you want. This is not kill animals for fun or for sport. This is the right that God has given us, an expression of our dominion over the animal world, that we can eat meat. Okay? That we can eat meat. Now, God gives one qualifier in the way that this goes down. And this qualifier is we don't eat the meat with the blood. And that's really distinguishing us from the way animals eat animals. Okay? A lion devours a zebra on TV. You've seen this. And, you, you know, craziest thing happens. He doesn't cook it. Okay? He doesn't prepare it. He just throws down right there. And God commands us that we don't do that. Okay? We don't eat meat with the blood. We are not like animals. We are, we are God's image bearers in the earth. So this, is, this distinguishes us from the animals. But this is, this is awesome. It also is a picture of the gospel of Jesus. Did you know that? That when we don't eat blood and meat, this is a picture of the gospel. Listen to this. This blood that we are to refrain from is to constantly remind us of something. Leviticus chapter 17, verses 10 and 11. If anyone of the house of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn among them eats any blood... I will set my face against that person who eats blood and I will cut him off from among his people. For the life of the flesh is in the blood and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. And so here's what God is doing. When we refrain from eating this blood, this is a gospel shadow that this blood is marked off by God 
to be a constant reminder to us of a life given for our atonement. Life given for our atonement. And so what God is doing here is He's providing nourishment for human life to continue. He's, he's richly providing them food. And at the same time, He is foreshadowing His glorious gospel. That this blood that's in, light, in animals is supposed to be marked off as a remembrance. Okay? This is actually one of the only food laws in the new covenant that still stands. Still today, this is binding on us. That we are to mark off this blood in animals as a reminder to us. It's restated. In Acts chapter 15, there's a letter written to these Gentile churches coming out of this meeting called the Jerusalem Council. And in Acts chapter 15, verse 28 and 29, what we just read was repeated there to the Gentile churches that they are not to eat meat with blood, that they are not to consume blood. So even today, even in this moment, thousands of years past Genesis 9, God still intends that every time we see it, Every time that we see the blood, it's supposed to be a reminder to us of Jesus Christ laying down His life for our atonement. God set up His world like that. That all over planet earth, there would be these gospel pictures every time human beings eat. This is a picture of the gospel. And Christians are to remember this. Every time we see the blood. So God provides nourishment for human life. And we're to expect Him to do that. And then we also see that He provides protection for human life. We see this in verses 5 and 6. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man... In his own image. Almost every person by nature knows that murder is wrong. Something built into the conscience and it can be seared and it can be defiled. But almost every, every person on planet earth knows that it is wrong. But this verse tells us why it's wrong. Okay? Why is murder wrong? Why is taking a human life wrong? And God tells us here that it's wrong because it is lashing out and killing an image bearer. A fellow human being who bears God's image. This is why murder is wrong. This is why abortion is wrong. Murder in every form is wrong because you kill an image bearer of God. Something more is going on than horizontal when murder happens. Okay, You horizontally murder another person and that's bad enough. But vertically you assault an image bearer of God. And it, there's, a vertical, there's a vertical offense to murder that you, that you raise up and you assault an image bearer and it's counted an offense to God Himself. He is the only one with the authority of life and death over His creatures. Okay, This is why murder is wrong in, in God's Word. Now, why is this happening here? Why do we have new provisions, new protections for human life that show up here? And I want you to think back in Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6, before the flood, when God's talking about how wicked the world had, had, had gotten right before He sends the waters of judgment. Genesis chapter 6 verse 11 says this, that the earth was filled with violence. That planet earth was filled with violence. And that means, in case you don't know this, that means that planet earth was filled with murderers. People that killed people all over the planet. Filled with violence. 
And you get just one of these zone ins in Genesis chapter 4 to this wicked man named Lamech. And he is singing a song and celebrating that he will murder anyone who dares to touch him. This is the condition of planet earth before the flood. And here, God gives this gracious, and yes, I'm calling this gracious. God gives this gracious provision to humanity. A new provision. And this provision is to protect the planet from once again going back to Genesis chapter 6, verse 11. This is His provision and His protection to make sure that this doesn't happen again. And the provision is this. That from this point forward, the one who willfully takes the life of another human being is to be put to death. This is God's institution of the death penalty. In Genesis chapter 9. If a person can be proved guilty beyond all reasonable doubt that they murdered another person, God's command, not just His provision, but God's command is that that person is to be put to death. This is His gracious provision to humanity. One commentator called this, he said, this is simply God's word to a violent world. Okay, This is His provision to a violent world. Now, we live in a... There's, there's some strange ideas that, that we grow up around. You know, uh, People hug trees, talk to plants. Uh, in our generation, in our day, there's some strange things that go on. And one of them is this. That in, in all of our intellect, in all of our education, we think, yeah, that's, that's pretty archaic. That's pretty primitive. You know, now we're advanced. And we know now that it's not right to put murderers to death. You know, that's not compassionate, okay? And we live in a culture in a day and age that a lot of people think they're more compassionate and more humane than the living God, and you're not. No one is. No one is more loving than He is. No one is more gracious than He is. And you are not more compassionate than God, okay? And so that, that's one of the arguments that's pitted up against the death penalty, is that it's just not, it's just not compassionate. It's just not kind. Well, God's the one that instituted it. And no one's more compassionate than God. If we disregard this, we don't become a more humane society. The exact opposite happens. If we disregard this, society plunges further and further into violence, just like what you already saw happen in Genesis chapter 6. This provision of God serves to protect overall human life by restraining other murderers. It serves to protect overall human life by restraining other murderers. I want to push into this. Now, capital punishment is not an excuse for an individual to retaliate against another individual. That's personal vengeance. This is God's command to human society as a whole. And in fact, almost every scholar sees Genesis chapter 9 as the institution of human government. Why? Because this is God's command to human governments, not individuals. Okay, Human governments are the ones that are supposed to, to issue the death penalty for sinners, for murderers. Listen to Romans chapter 13. I'll read the first four verses. Romans 13, 1-4. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, 
And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. Listen close. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. He is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Did you know that? That God has given that authority to human government. They're called a minister of His wrath with a sword in their hand. Okay, God has given human governments the authority to put to death murderers. And I'll say this again. This, doesn't, this, this cannot ever uproot sin that's deep in the heart of, of, of human beings. But it can restrain sin. And what I mean by that is you can't take away wicked desires with laws and authority, but you can restrain it. That's what the sword's for, is to restrain sinners, to keep sin in check. And it is the duty of all human governments, all just human governments, to uphold the sanctity of life in their nation, in the sphere over which they rule. And one of the ways that this happens is they are to punish murderers. They are to punish murderers. This is God's Word. This is God's Word. If this is landing wrong on you today, I want to talk to you about this. I want to talk to you about this. Ask me when this is over. Verse 7. I told you we'd come back to this. This is a repeated reminder. You already saw this verbiage, this phrase in verse 1. Verse 7 says in you, Be fruitful and multiply and increase greatly on the earth. So this repeated phrase is reminding us, even today, that we are on planet earth for a mission. We have a mission while we're here. We're breathing in God's world. We have a heartbeat today and God has given us a mission in this world. You are here not for yourself. You are here for God. You are here for His glory. And specifically, your task is to spread His image to the entire earth. And to all the earth. That you are to fill planet earth with the image of God. That is our mission. Now it is really important that you understand that the scope of this mission is way broader than physical reproduction. Okay, If it only meant physical reproduction, and that's all that God was after, then why did He kill everybody in Genesis chapter 6? That's not what He's going for. What He's going for is that His image, His likeness, fills the entire earth. He is so great, His name is to be praised, that the only thing that makes sense is that planet earth is literally filled with His likeness. That's His mission. Jesus basically says, says this same exact command restructured in different wording. In Matthew 28, He looks at His church. It's called the Great Commission. And He says, Go and make disciples of all nations. Do you know that this has been God's purpose from the very beginning? And nothing can stop this. He judges all humanity and His purpose to fill the earth with His image goes forward. Nothing can stop this. Nothing can stop it. We are to expect that His mission will absolutely be completed. Listen to Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 14. He says, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as water covers the sea. Humanity is to expect that the original purposes of God in creation will certainly be accomplished. We're to expect this. Finally, we are to expect that God will preserve human life 
until the very end, until the day of the Lord, until the final day. Listen to the remaining verses, 8 through 17. We'll read this again. Then God said to Noah, and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you, and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, every beast of the earth with you, and as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth I will establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you. For all future generations, I have set my bow in the clouds, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. And when I bring clouds over the earth, and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. I want you to notice how many times that word covenant just popped up in that paragraph. And that's what we want to know. That's what we want to press in and we want to know. We want to know this God of the covenant. And what he just did with Noah. Here, God makes a universal covenant of common grace. A universal covenant of common grace with all flesh. And this covenant stands to all generations, including ours. A universal covenant of common grace. This is God's kindness to all. God's kindness to all that he has made. So when we say common grace... Okay, this is not the saving benefits of God. This is just God's kindness to every creature in planet earth. And one of the ways that this happens is God promises. God promises that the cycles of nature, the rhythms of planet earth, are not going to stop until the final day of the Lord. Listen to Genesis chapter 8 verse 22. While the earth remains, this is the sure word of God, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, Summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. Shall not cease. This is the promise of God. He intends to, pre- to preserve human life with bringing along creation the way that He established it. He's going to hold it firm until the final day. Now, why is God telling us that? Why do we have this word from God? There is, God intends for this covenant with Noah that this provide a measure of security to human life. We don't live in a constant fear that the hammer is going to drop in any moment. And I know some people teach that. okay? But this covenant gives us assurance that there's going to be generations until the very end. And we don't know when the very end comes. But this covenant is sure. It's a firm word from God. And He even gives us a sign of this covenant. Calls it the bow. Most, some translations even translate that the rainbow. That every time that God looks upon this sign of this covenant, this rainbow, He's going to be reminded of what He swore and He promised to humanity. And this rainbow, it's a sign of peace after a storm, right? 
Storm blows all across, thunderstorms everywhere, and then when, when the sunshine begins to peak, that's when the rainbow comes. And this is the exact way that it flows in the context of Genesis. God punishes all sinners on planet earth with this global massive flood, but in the midst of judgment, God extends mercy to humanity. And this is supposed to be the reminder of this rainbow that in the midst of judgment, God has promised mercy to us, common grace to all humanity. So I want you to think about this. There is not a person, there might, there might be one or a few or many in this room that you do not know Jesus. You are not saved. Okay? And that's real. You might be in here today. That's even, that's even probable that there is somebody in this room that doesn't know Christ. But I want you to think about this. Breathe in, breathe out. I want you to think about how many heartbeats that you've had since, even since I started preaching. How many heartbeats that you had. And what I mean by that is there is not a human being in this room that you have not experienced the mercy that God promised in this covenant. You have personally partaken of the kindness of God. God has been good to you. God has been kind to you. God has provided for you since the moment you were born. This is His kindness to all. His promise of common grace. Jesus taught us this. Listen to Matthew 5 verse 45. He makes His Son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. That's the God of the Bible. That's the God of Scripture. That He sends rain and sunshine on all of humanity. Acts 14, verse 17. He did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your heart with food and gladness. Psalm 145, verse 9. The Lord is good to all. The Lord is good to all. And His mercy is over all that He has made. Do you know this? That God, What has God been to you? He hasn't been unjust. You don't have a bone to pick with Him. He has been good to you. He has been merciful to you your entire life. He's been good to you. Psalm 145, verse 15 and 16. You open your hand. You satisfy the desire of every living creature. The Lord is righteous in all His ways and kind in all His works. All His ways, all His works. Every creature that is provided for on planet earth is from His hand. He's kind to all. He's kind to you. And then the question really is, is why? Why does He do this? Why is He kind to all? This is grace, right? That means that all don't deserve it, but He's kind to all. He's gracious to all. And what's happening here in common grace and this general disposition of God towards His creation is that hum this, this kindness that God gives us, it delays the punishment that we deserve. It's the same thing that happened back in the Garden of Eden. That God said, on the day you eat of it, you will surely die. But God provided a substitute to, to take the immediate sentence of death and God let them live. Why? Because He's given us time to repent. He's given us time to respond. This is, the, this, is what com, this is what the response to common grace should be. That He's given you life and breath and a heartbeat. He's been good to you your entire life and yet you have rebelled against Him. And what should your response to be to the goodness of God to you? Listen to Romans chapter 2, verse 4. Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing... That God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. His kindness 
is meant to lead you to repentance. So this preservation that God does in every single generation, what does He intend? He's given humanity time to repent. He's given sinners time to repent. He's given multiple generations, every generation, time to respond to what He's done. Time to repent. And this covenant will preserve the human race until every single one of God's elect are brought into His kingdom. It will stand until the very end. His kind disposition to all that He has made. This is common grace. But I want you to think about this. If this is all the promise that we had from God, this, is, this would not be enough. This, this, would, this would be insufficient. If this is all that God said, that I'm going to keep you alive, I'm going to provide for you. So I want you to think about the covenant of Noah as preparatory. Preparatory in the sense that it's making a way for something else to happen. And what we mean by that is that we, we need more than common grace from God. We need more than a really long, rich, earthly life. Amen? That doesn't do us any good if at the end of that really long, earthly life, we die, stand before God the judge, and are condemned to eternal punishment. We need more than common grace. We need more than this. Even in Genesis chapter 9. You have immediately after this covenant is announced in Genesis 9. You have the most righteous man on the planet fall into a grievous sin before God. He gets hammered. The same one who received this covenant is drunk. Not even four or five verses after God finishes talking to him. Do you see this? We need more than common grace. We need saving grace from God. We need salvation from our sins. And how this works is that common grace is preparatory. It makes a way that, that this saving grace can happen. It preserves humanity long enough. It gives us time so that we can respond to what God has done for us in these other covenants that follow in Scripture. So I want to remind you of this. God, God promises common grace in this covenant of Noah. And not even three chapters later in the Word of God, He, he makes a covenant with a man named Abraham. This time the covenant isn't global. It's not all of humanity. This time the covenant is made to Abraham and his offspring. And what God promises to this man, nothing in him merited it. God reveals Himself to him and He promises Abraham that you're going to have an offspring that's going to bless all the nations of the earth. This is God's sworn oath. His holy promise. His unshakable word to Abraham. And then 42 generations later, we get that from the Gospel of Matthew, 42 generations, that word has sat, ready to explode into history. 42 generations later, God sends forth the Christ, the offspring of Abraham, to bless every nation that He has made. And the point is this, that God keeps His word. He kept His promise to Noah. He kept, he kept His promise to Abraham. Fast forward. God makes a promise to to Moses. He makes a covenant with Moses. And essentially he promises Moses on the basis of this covenant that he's going to forgive sinners on the basis of an atoning sacrifice for sin. That he's going to offer, offer humanity forgiveness and atonement. And then for thousands of years, God foreshadows what He's about to do. And the blood of bulls and goats are thrown on the altar. Thousands, even millions of these foreshadowing acts of atonement. Until what? Until God sends forth the Christ, keeps His promise to Moses. And Jesus comes to us as the Lamb of God 
that takes away the sin of the world, the once for all sacrifice for sin. And what do we know about God? He keeps His word. He keeps His covenant word. He keeps His promise to Noah. He kept His promise to Abraham. And He kept His promise to Noah, to, to Moses. And then in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God makes a covenant to a man named David. And He promises David... He he tells David that one of his offspring is going to be a forever king. That that there's going to be a king that sits on his throne forever. That means he's never going to die. There's a forever king coming through the line of David. 28 generations later, what does God do? Sends forth the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the Lord Jesus Christ. Rocks back on His throne. Indestructible life. Resurrected from the dead. The forever King promised to David. Even in this moment, that word is being fulfilled. God keeps His covenant promise. Do you know this about God? And all of this is moving forward to this new covenant that God has promised us in Jeremiah 31. 31 through 34. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. And so I just want to kick this to you. Has God kept His promise to you? Has He put away every sin that you have ever committed? Has He kept His word? You remember what Ryan encouraged us with from the very beginning. Has He washed it all the way with this bloody new covenant that's been inaugurated in Jesus Christ? Did He keep His Word. That's what we want to know Him as. The God of the covenant. The God that binds Himself to His promises. Did He keep His Word to you? He has an absolutely perfect record in all of human history. He has not fumbled or dropped the ball one time. Not one time. The God of the Bible is the God of truth. And when He speaks to us, His Word is absolute Truth every single time. John 17, 17. Your word is truth. Your word is truth. Who said that? The Savior, the Son of God, tells us that the words of God are unbroken truth. They're truth. 2 Samuel 7, 28. O Lord God, You are God and Your words are true. Your words are true. We can say that in a negative way. Hebrews 6.18 It is impossible for God to lie. Do you know that about God? It is no more possible for God to lie than for God to cease to exist. It is essential to His being. If He were to lie, He would cease to be God. That's what He tells us there. His Word is truth. It is firm. It is sure. Numbers 23.19 God is not a man that He should lie, nor a son of man that He should change His mind. Has He said and will He not do it? Has He spoken and will He not fulfill it? That's what we want to know God like. The God who will never break His Word. This is who He is. This is who our God is. He will always keep His promises to us. Always. 1 Corinthians 1.9 God is faithful. 
God is faithful. Hebrews 10, 23. He who promised is faithful. He who promised is faithful. Listen to Lamentations 3, 23. Great is your faithfulness. Do you know this about God? Do you know this about God? If somebody were to take a peek into your life, and the, the way that you operate in your relationship with God, are you leaned against this, not just faithfulness, but great faithfulness of God? Great faithfulness. Listen, listen to Joshua 21.45. Not one word. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord has made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. Not one single word. Word. Jesus taught us this. Not a jot, not a tittle is going to pass away from the Word of God. Heaven and earth are going to pass away, but His Word is never going to pass away. Not one single word from His mouth that He has sworn is going anywhere, but it will stand true forever. This is our God. He is the faithful one. He's the God of truth. And when He speaks, His Word is truth. And so this is His attribute of faithfulness. And we just threw it up there and looked at it from the Word of God. And it's true. And I want us all to be aware of it. I want us all to know this about the God of Scripture, that He's faithful. But I want to tell you this. It is a different world in someone acknowledging that God is faithful and someone laying a hold of this faithful God. It's a different world of you knowing facts about God and you sinking your teeth into the faithfulness of God and feeding on His faithfulness by trusting His Word. By relying on His promises. And that's where I want us to press toward today. I want to, remind by, I want to re- close by reminding us that God, or this, is, this is Peter told us this, 1 Peter chapter 1, that God has given us exceedingly great and precious promises. Do you know that? You don't have just promises, you have exceedingly great and precious promises. And I want us to leave here today encouraged that we would believe them. That we would lay hold of them. Not that we would just factually know it, but that we'd have some people leaned against the faithfulness of God. Partaking of the faithfulness of God. God's promises to us, they're an anchor in almost everything that I can think of. They're an anchor to us in prayer. They're an anchor to us in trial. They're an anchor to us in temptation. They're an anchor to us in the different seasons of life that we enter into. Anchor to us in suffering. Anchor to us in marriage. Anchor to us in bringing up children. They're anchors. They ground us in God. And what I mean by that, if you aren't laying a hold of these promises, then you're like a ship in this massive storm in the ocean. And you're being flopped around everywhere because you don't have an anchor. You're not holding on to God. You're not laying a hold of God. So that's the encouragement. And I want to give you just a practical way to think about this. Not a vague way. That our faith in Christ is supposed to grow. It's supposed to mature. That God, God is supposed to finish it according to Hebrews chapter 12. Jesus is the author and the finisher, perfecter of our faith. And one of the ways that this happens in our life is God takes us through different seasons of life and you have different things going on in different seasons. And God intends for you to search out His Word and ransack it like you're trying to go for this hidden treasure until your eyes hit one of these glorious, exceedingly great and precious promises. And in that moment, God gives you some food to sustain you through that season. Specific promises for specific seasons. I want to give you some examples of this. Anybody in the room 
Okay, I know of a few past few weeks. Maybe your job has been up for grabs. Head of a family, you know you should be, you know that God has called you to provide for your family, and you feel the weight of it in that season, and you want to glorify God. What do you do? What do you do? You search in the Word of God, and maybe one day your 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 eyes land Psalm thirty five. So Psalm thirty seven twenty five. I have been been young and now I'm old. I have been young and now I'm old, and yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken, nor his children begging for bread. What does that promise do to that man in that season? Lifts his face to the heavens, right? Lifts his face to the heavens. Maybe you're struggling with some massive marriage problems, or maybe you're wigging out over this presidential election that's about to happen. What do you do? Digging, 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 searching for treasure. You want this anxiety to land on a faithful promise of God. Proverbs 21.1 The heart of the king is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. What do you think happens to that turmoil in the soul? That you trust in your sovereign God. Maybe there's some kind of sickness or suffering or some kind of trauma that you're going through in your life right now. Psalm 55, 22. Cast your burden on the Lord. And He will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. Do you see how this works? In every season that you pass through, there's not this mechanical way to do it. That you dig and you dig and you dig. And your faith lands on a promise of God. Why? Because not one word that He's ever given us is going to fall to the ground. This is how we grow. This is how we grow. Those examples like that, where somebody's laying a hold of something that God said, those are the only types of disciples that have the right to claim things like this. Isaiah 26, 3 and 4. You will keep Him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you, because He trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. And I just want to encourage us, let's go after this as a local church. I want you as your brother to believe God. I want us to believe Jesus. I want us to honor the faithfulness of Jesus by believing Him. I want us to go after this. I want you to pray for me. I want want us to pray for one another that we would believe God. Not just know things about Him, but that we'd eat these promises from His Word like sustenance in these different seasons of life to the glory of Christ. And I want to close with this. I want to show you that the, what we just did, we went from the covenant of Noah and we went straight through all the way to the new covenant that God has given us in Christ. And I want to show you that that's exactly how Isaiah tells us to interpret this covenant and to use this covenant. Isaiah 54, 9 and 10. Listen close. This is like the days of Noah to me. As I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth, so I have sworn that I will not be angry with you, and I will not rebuke you. For the mountains may depart and hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. And what he tells us to do is the same God that looked at Noah and said, I will never again destroy with the flood, has looked at us and says, my compassion, my grace toward you will never go away. Never go away. 
The God who said to Noah never again. He makes similar promises to us in Christ. And I want you to be encouraged as I read these as we close. The God who told you these things, He can never lie. He cannot lie. Hebrews 13.5 I will never leave you or forsake you. Can't lie. Doesn't even have it in Him. Never leave you or forsake you. John 4, 14. Jesus says, Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. You can drink of the things of Christ and nothing else in all of God's creation can even begin to compare to Jesus, to His glory, to His satisfaction of the human soul. Never be thirsty again. John 10, 27 and 28. I want somebody to hear this in this room that goes back and forth of, am I saved, am I not saved, am I saved, am I not saved? Listen to the promise of God. Just like God used His covenant to crush Noah's fears, let God use His promises to you to pierce through this unbelief, to pierce through these fears and these doubts. My sheep hear My voice, and I know them, and they follow Me, and I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one can snatch them out of My hand promise from the one who can never lie the one who bled for us raised from the dead <coughs> Jesus John 11 25 and 26 Jesus said I am the resurrection and the life whoever believes in me though he die yet shall he live and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die and then the son of God looks at her and says do you believe this do you believe this is that just a fact for you? Or have you laid hold of this? I believe that promise from Christ. That I will never die because of what Jesus has done for me. So I want us to be encouraged today. Our God is the God who keeps His promises. He keeps His covenant. And I want to close with Psalm 111 verse 9. It hits a note of worship. Let's worship God for this. For who He is. Psalm 111 verse 9. He sent redemption. To His people, He has commanded His covenant forever. Holy and awesome is His name. Holy and awesome is His name. Praise to the name of Jesus Christ, the faithful one. Let's pray. Lord, we come to You and we celebrate, Lord, Your work of grace in Your church, in our lives, God. God, just remind us, Lord, of how hopeless we are apart from You but of how secure we are in Your covenant of grace, God. Bear witness to Your Word today, we pray. God, make it powerfully effective in this church, Lord. Use it to accomplish Your purpose. God, I ask You to bring assurance all across this room that You would embolden us, Lord, to believe You. Embolden us to believe You, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.